Cage.html is brought to you by the Cage Club Network for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more. Check out the Cage Club Network at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Everybody, he's Kevo. And he's Nico. And this is MCU.html Black Panther. Yeah. So Black Panther represents a remarkable shift in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, not just in terms of diversity, which is a very clear change, but in the behind the scenes stuff as well and how this movie got made. We really started to see the mold of the Marvel Cinematic Universe films start to crack with Spider-Man Homecoming. I guess even with Ant-Man being a heist film. But like, we started to see where we were breaking away from traditional superhero film narratives, you know, and a little bit more with Thor Ragnarok as well. And then I think it really is Black Panther that breaks that mold. And we see something that, while still fitting within the Marvel Cinematic Universe's tone and storytelling, is such a unique, beautiful creature that stands on its own. Black comic book fans had to wait an extraordinarily long time between black leading men in the Marvel Universe. While Blade did ultimately kick off the Marvel movie franchise mania some 25 years ago, it really wasn't until Black Panther that the Marvel Cinematic Universe truly embraced the idea of a black hero front and center. And Black Panther had also been pushed many ways. They had had a motion comic animated series on BET at one point. There had been attempts to include him in the Ultimate Avengers cartoons. It was not a mistake that this movie got the attention it got. Marvel knew what they wanted. And you know, it's funny that you mentioned Blade, considering the fact that Wesley Snipes, who portrayed the character, was someone who had been pushing for a Black Panther film since about 1992. And for all the ways in which they have tried to make Black Panther work and get attention for that franchise and that character it took such a long time for them to finally get this film and i'm so happy with the end results because i think it made the wait more worth it because it really is one of the most breathtaking and universally loved marvel cinematic universe films and i believe that's reflected in its record-breaking box office and its oscar wins there was cultural backlash when The Oscars attempted to freeze Black Panther out of Best Picture, which was just the dumbest shit I have ever seen. And Black Twitter dragged the hell out of them, and then even white people got it and started dragging them. They were favorite movie. What the fuck category is favorite fucking movie or whatever they were calling it? That was the dumbest shit ever. Black Panther deserved to be nominated for Best Picture for a multitude of reasons, not the least of which was its bravery in the face of a homogenizing industry that's looking to push all films to the middle of the road. Black Panther was not a centrist approach to its ideas. The love for this film and its power are undeniable. It's the number three highest grossing film domestically here in the US and Canada, and number nine worldwide. That's hugely significant and can't be ignored. Black Panther probably best utilized the 
pre-existing character elements that had been put into Civil War. Not that I feel Homecoming didn't use them well, but Homecoming used them less directly. The idea of this is T'Challa's moment to become king, that there is an empire's worth of secrets for him to learn about and how it relates to leading his people. There were a lot of layers here where they were able to play into the Marvel Cinematic Universe without compromising the film's integrity or vision. And I just think that's incredible. I completely agree, and it's right down to a lot of the visuals even. I noted while we were watching the film again for this episode that the final shot of T'Challa cradling Killmonger when he removes the blade from his chest and dies, it's very reminiscent of T'Challa's moment with Zemo at the end of Civil War where he doesn't let that man kill himself to bring him to justice. And here he makes a different choice for different reasons at a different point in his life. You know, and even right down to the fact that you said it while we were watching the movie this last time, this was like a Wakandan civil war with the border tribe turning against T'Challa and siding with Killmonger. And so there are a lot of echoes of that concept from the previous film with T'Challa being picked up on again here. They really used his first appearance in Civil War amazingly well and so much better and more full than Spidey had been used in Civil War comparatively. And so this film then was able to build better with that foundation. Something else this film did extraordinarily well was give us an incredibly deep bench of phenomenal characters very easily, very quickly, not the least of which is scene stealer of every scene she is in Okoye. Yes. Unbelievably, it could just have been her movie too. This was incredible. I could not be happier that this character has become so resonant with fans. I just think this movie hits it out of the park on every level. This cast comes together. There's a vision. There's a story. There's a narrative. It was a really rewarding rewatch. Yeah, I really, really, really agree. The worst I would say is sometimes I think Shuri is a little bit too sharp with people. I still love her character very much, but there were a few times where I was like, you're being a little mean. Even then, I think we see Shuri grow significantly in the course of a short, short movie, especially as it relates to Ross. Yes. And everyone around her. And even when I feel like she's short with her brother, there's also a genuine affection there. She's a kid as well, and that has to be acknowledged. I'm excited to see that character grow. And I want to find out how this movie grew into the incredible creature that it is. So, Keva, would you give us the BTS on BP? And the Oscar goes to Black Panther Ruth the first Oscar and third nomination for Ruth Carter. She was previously nominated in this category for Malcolm X and Amistad. Well, like I said, Wesley Snipes first announced his intention to make a Black Panther film in June of 1992. It was pretty slow going for a while there. It sat in development hell for ages for a number of reasons, like Stan Lee being unhappy with the script and Marvel having corporate issues but it was a really important project to wesley snipes apparently to the point where even when he eventually became unattached from the project because of all of his legal troubles when he found out it was happening he tweeted his support of the project he was still working on it like into the 2000s hoping to make it work even though by the time the film hadn't come together in 2004 blade 3 director david s goyer commented that by that point snipes Starring himself, both as Black Panther and Blade, might have been a bit overkill. I kind of get that. And I don't know that I would have had the same emotional reaction to Wesley Snipes' Blade that I had to Chadwick Boseman's 
nuanced, delicate performance. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. There's this video that's been going around this week, a 90s Avengers that has Sarah Michelle Gellar as Carol Danvers, for example. It's shared on our Facebook page, if you look up on Facebook, Husbands Talking More or Less. They have Denzel as T'Challa. That's more who I could have seen in the 90s playing Black Panther. But his spirit was certainly in the right place. Snipes felt that Africa had been portrayed poorly in Hollywood films up to that point, and he wanted to highlight the majesty of the continent and really get it right. So I think if his heart had been in the right place, maybe it would have been good. Who knows? We'll never know now. So by the time Marvel Studios was created in the mid-2000s, Marvel chairman and CEO Avi Arad announced that Black Panther was one of the 10 films that was being developed by the new studio, a sentiment that was repeated two years later by Kevin Feige. Throughout the entire process of building the MCU, they have been seeding it. You know, we knew that it was vibranium that Cap Shield was made out of back in 2011. They were potentially going to show Wakanda in Iron Man 2, but they really wanted to wait until they had a full idea of how to depict it, which frankly, I think, considering what we've gotten and what the promise of more is, was very smart. It's also important that a black voice be the one to shape Black Panther's narrative and the Marvel Universe had a wealth of white voices and a dearth of black voices until this point. Yeah, and it's so important for people to be able to tell their own stories and for it not to have to be shared with someone else. So I am glad that it was able to get such an amazing spotlight. When the time finally came, they really did hit the ground running. They announced all at once in October 2014 when Black Panther would be released with the fact that Chadwick Boseman had already been cast in the lead role and would be appearing in advance of his solo film in Captain America Civil War. And what's interesting that I found on this round of research is that Chadwick Boseman apparently did not technically audition. So, like, he didn't technically audition, so he auditioned in a in a matter of speaking? Well, the quote that I found is this directly. What he said was, this was really a first. It wasn't really an audition process. It was more of a discussion about what they wanted to do and how I saw it and what I wanted to do. It was more of a feeling out process, and they're all really smart. I can't talk too much about it. The only thing I can say is, they are smarter than you think they are. Speaking, of course, of the Marvel team, which, considering how well that film ended up doing only three short years later, yeah, I guess they are pretty smart, and I think it's really interesting that that was their process of casting Black Panther, of sitting down with this actor and wanting to know what they wanted from it as well. Considering this team was able to put two heroes, both Black Panther and Captain Marvel, two heroes which all of culture said would never be able to turn out hit movies over a billion dollars in their first solo pictures— I have a feeling these guys know what they're doing. They really put a lot behind it. The only thing that ended up pushing back Black Panther was a couple of months later, the fact that they reacquired Spider-Man. And we all know that Marvel doesn't really have a say in when Sony wants to put out their Spider-Man films. At one point, Ava DuVernay, director of Selma and A Wrinkle in Time, was in talks to direct either this or Captain Marvel, but passed. Another director who, as she explained, she'd been drawn to the cultural significance of a black hero, but like many other people who pass on Marvel projects disagreed with marvel on the story and did not want to compromise her own vision what's really interesting is that in march of 2018 her wrinkle of time and ryan coogler's black panther would mark the first time the top two films at the box office were directed by black filmmakers so even though she passed on this film she ended up contributing historically with it 
in her own way. That's incredible. Another director who had been considered at one point was F. Gary Gray. I believe I had mentioned that he was considered for Captain America Winter Soldier. Ultimately, Disney wooed the hell out of Ryan Coogler, and he ultimately agreed to direct if he could bring on his own collaborators from previous films. He felt that MCU films were often shot, composed, and edited by the same in-house people, which is true. The cinematographer, production designer, and composer all came from Ryan Coogler. And that cinematographer is the second ever female credit that we have in one of these slots, and a queer woman at that, Rachel Morrison. And her wife's name is also Rachel, which I find funny and confusing, but it works for them. She worked with Ryan Coogler on his film Fruitvale Station in 2013, and was the cinematographer on Dee Reese's Mudbound in 2017, for which she was nominated for a whole host of awards, including being the first woman to win the New York Film Critics Circle Award for Best Cinematography, first woman nominated for feature category of American Society of Cinematographers Outstanding Achievement Awards, and first woman ever nominated for Academy Award for Best Cinematography. So, pretty badass. I'm horrified that a film released in 2013 represented that many firsts for women. Yes, absolutely. But I'm at least grateful that it's happened. Yeah. The composer is a specific favorite of mine, Ludwig Göransson. He's a Swedish dude who did the score on a bunch of random sitcoms that you might have heard of, such as Community, Happy Endings, and New Girl. Again, another Community connection happening in the MCU. And I believe it is through Community that he hooked up with Childish Gambino and has done a ton of work with him. He previously worked with Coogler on Fruitvale Station in 2013 and Creed in 2015. He actually won three Grammys for two different projects in one year. Two for This Is America and one for Black Panther in 2019. And of course, his score for this film won the Oscar, which, you know, amazing, amazing that we're seeing multiple Oscar wins for Black Panther. Absolutely. It's important to note that Black Panther won three Oscars. It won Best Original Music Score for Ludwig Göransson, Best Costume Design for Ruth E. Carter, and Best Production Design for Hannah Beachler and J.R. Hart. Yes, and production design is not a category that I normally bring up personally on these episodes. I stick to the main four that I have been doing, but I'm really glad that you brought that list up because I want that to be of note. Again, that's a Coogler hire. That was someone that he brought in to work on this film. Someone that was not a Coogler hire, though, was the co-screenwriter of this film, Joe Robert Cole. After writing a Chinatown-style cop script that he pitched to Marvel, he was invited to a meeting with Marvel Studios in hopes of doing a War Machine movie, but Iron Man 3 sort of scrapped that, and instead Marvel invited him to join its writer's program. This is Joe Robert Cole's quote on the writer's program. The way it works, and I'm only speaking for myself here, is they give you an office and a character. You read all the comics with that character, then you come up with a story you see for that character. You present it, get notes, and if everything moves along, you're greenlit to write the script. And that is how he wrote a script for a potential Inhuman film back in 2014. At one time, Marvel was so excited about the Inhumans. They were forcing them into everything because they just didn't have access to the X-Men. And now they're just sort of like, nope, got the X-Men back. No more Inhumans. Bye. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, frankly, I kind of remember you predicting that back in the day, that that's kind of why they were doing it and that it was probably going to turn as soon as Disney and Marvel could get their hands back on the property. Hopefully the Inhumans will see their time in the sun once again. 
they would prefer to see their time in the moon, thank you. Sure, the moon works just as well, wherever you little weirdos want to be. That's totally fine. Joe Robert Cole went on to work on the many award-nominated The People vs. O.J. Simpson American Crime Story, for which one of his two episodes was Emmy-nominated, and it was while working on this show that he was approached by Marvel producer Nate Moore to write the film, which he, in a lot of ways, co-wrote with director Ryan Coogler. Ryan Coogler, big name. Everyone's super hyped about him right now. He did Fruitvale Station in 2013, Creed in 2015, which featured Tessa Thompson, Valkyrie, and now this, Black Panther. And the Oscar goes to... Ludwig Göransson. Black Panther. This is the first Oscar and nomination for Ludwig Göransson. I think the writing is such a definitive part of this film, and it matters so much to the narrative that the movie chose to tell. The film relied on the audience understanding the bits of Civil War, and what they didn't, they dealt with pretty well and pretty quickly. Once they dealt with that, we got those two opening sequences, and the first thing I thought about those two opening sequences, both the flashback childhood story where T'Chaka explains to T'Challa, Bast, and Wakanda, and vibranium mythos and then the flashback to southern california in the 90s i felt that both of those kind of fit the all marvel heroes get like a big origin flashback moment that's kind of like giving you all of them it gives you the thor one and it gives you the cap one black panther does deserve that kind of treatment and that so much of his first appearance is someone else's movie doesn't stop them here. They still give you all of the origin you could possibly want without making me feel like I'm being dragged down by an origin story, Doctor Strange. Uh, I agree. The movie is Black Panther, and so we're also seeing the origin of the character beyond T'Challa. Black Panther is the origins of that character back in the roots of wakanda and it's t'chaka before him back when he was the black panther and he was king one of the things that i thought was really cool at the opening of the film because we watch everything with the subtitles on it doesn't say that it is t'chaka and t'challa who are the father and son with the story in the opening sequence it is quite probably those actors but it just says father and boy and it's really interesting it could be any wakandan father and son it doesn't necessarily have to be the king and the prince that father and son dynamic is so universal i thought that was incredibly cool and the narrative of fathers and sons and familial bond is such a central idea to this story we have at different times felt that the relationship between howard and tony is presented well and not well it is mostly presented well when it's presented as young Howard as a mirror of Tony. It is mostly presented poorly when they're trying to convince us that Tony has some sort of reasonable relationship with his parents. This movie allowed them to deal with an actual family. We see the relationship between the entire royal family in a way that doesn't just drive the film, it's the emotional core of the film. Ultimately, I think Shuri is another breakout character in this movie and helped make the movie such a cultural phenomenon. Everybody wants the Shuri-Peter movie that we want so bad. And all of the choices they made in bringing these characters in one at a time early on in the film really helped me settle into the narrative of Wakanda in a really clear way. I didn't feel confused. I felt like I was gently walked through all the things I needed so that I could be on the same page as the story where it was. Yeah, and it was once again 
all so beautifully done visually. That opening sequence with the sand table graphics, absolutely stunning. I keep saying the one from Guardians 2, and then the one from Thor Ragnarok with the backstory of the Grandmaster. They're really consistently delivering on amazing graphics that are all different from each other, so distinctively different and all beautiful. And I, it's amazing. I, breathtaking. And one of the things that, again, we have to just praise that Marvel took a step back and let Ryan Coogler be in charge because I don't think we could have gotten Afropunk futurism from anyone else at Marvel. Mm. It had to be this team. We are given such a depth of mythology by using the sand table to tell the story and it giving such a unique visual representation to Wakanda. Understanding how important vibranium is early on really helps as well. And by the time we get to Wakanda, I'm pretty psyched. First, we make that stop in Southern California, and I think they handle it about as well as they could handle force-feeding us that moment. And I actually love the secret betrayal and I just love so much of who they showed T'Chaka and Zuri to be. It was a really interesting sequence to open on. Sterling K. Brown gives a great, great performance as Njobu. I hate to be the dude who puts it in everything, but like, is there a slight gay vibe there between him and James? That like betrayal, I don't know. Maybe I just don't. I don't know. James is real beautiful, so I understand wanting it to be there. It's just so intense, the way that he's, like, shocked by this betrayal. And I feel like if you're involved in that sort of mob warfare, you have some understanding of betrayal being part of the game that you're playing. I don't know if it's just Sterling K. Brown selling it real extra hard. He gives some great performances with his limited screen time here. But yeah, it was intense, for sure. And... It helped me understand who the Dora were going to be throughout the film. Mm. I feel like every moment set a little bit more groundwork so that when we did finally get to Wakanda and we were in the present and we had our Black Panther and T'Challa reigned, I felt like, yeah, yeah, I just took like a Wakandan history lesson and I'm psyched. It made me eager to get to the movie. Yes, and not in a way that slowed it down for me, though. We don't get to the Marvel Studios logo until about seven minutes into the film, but I don't feel like it dragged the way that, say, the opening sequence of Captain America the First Avenger did. Once we're in Wakanda and T'Challa begins assembling the cast, we get Okoye, we get Nakia, we get Shuri, we get the Queen, we get Zuri, we get so many characters like it's actually almost hard to keep track of how many incredible characters are introduced so quickly i'll admit i don't love wakabi he it's and it's not just stuff that happens later on i feel like i don't know i don't think there was room for him in t'challa's entourage as part of the narrative this is such a movie about strong women that surround t'challa in so many ways not to say that he's not an important comic character as he translated into film, but it almost feels like his inclusion was specifically to be a token dude friend. He's just some guy to stand around who's around T'Challa's age, so there's another straight dude who isn't an old guy like Zuri. Otherwise, basically the entire cast would be female. Which is, again, a humongous departure for Marvel superhero movies. We used to be able to count the number of women in multiple films on one hand. I don't think I could count the number of strong, powerful, dynamic, fully fleshed out women in this film alone on one hand. 
Now, there is a counterpoint to that that we will get to eventually, but we're going to deal with this at least a little bit in sequence. So we have that opening little battle where T'Challa breaks Nakia out and brings her back to Wakanda. It was a really cool sequence. It was fun to see the Dora Milaje in action. It was fun to see Nakia in action right away. I immediately love this character. Everybody wants a Shuri Peter Parker film, obviously, but I want a Nakia Black Widow film. I feel like these two women spies would be amazing together. I'm a fan of anything that gets any of these characters in more films. I think it's important to see this sort of uniformity spread throughout the Marvel Universe. If these characters are all going to interact on multiple occasions, it's important that they know each other. I'm really glad to see Okoye on the poster for Endgame because I think that represents her importance in this universe. Yeah, again, you know, she and so many of these characters are so real from the moment you meet them. They immediately feel fleshed out and comfortable. I love the way that T'Challa's inner circle constantly gives him shit, but aren't overly disrespectful. You know, they you can tell they genuinely care for and respect him, even with how much they tease him. It's really, really amazing cast. And I think when they do overly tease him, they balance it well. Because as annoying as it is, kind of funny annoying, that Shuri flips her brother off. She also says, just because something works doesn't mean it cannot be improved, which I think is like the central focus of this movie. Yes, I agree 100%. So her wisdom balances out any disrespect she might show. Speaking of disrespect, oh my god, I know he's a psychopath and a murderer and a nightmare, and I don't like anything about the person Killmonger is, but... Oh my god, Michael B. Jordan is literally too beautiful to look at. <laughs> it's like, this movie is just like, it's too many beautiful men, it's Killmonger, it's M'Baku, it's just not fair, it's just not normal, this much beautiful. I do think this introduction to Killmonger says everything you needed to say right off the bat, including his disrespect of women. Yeah, in a couple of different ways. About... 15 minutes in, we get the introduction of Killmonger. That you ain't checking what you're putting in your body thing. It was a cute twist, but like that line is awkward. The way he delivers it is awkward. I kind of see what you're talking about with Michael B. Jordan, but sometimes uh, there, I don't know, sometimes he rubs me the wrong way too. This sequence introduces us to one of the most annoying characters in the fucking film. Eric's, I guess, girlfriend from the way they make out, but you wouldn't know from the fact that she doesn't have a name and speaks 10 words before she's shot later. This character really pisses me off and, and is a really annoying counterbalance to all of the wonderful, amazing women, because this was not a great way to treat a character. Because I never got a real name for her, I just named her Bad Bad Barista. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Yeah, one of her only two times ever speaking is while she is undercover for this heist. And like, all right, I need a little bit of backstory there. Was she working there and that was their inn? Did she get a job there just for this heist? And now she ran off into the night? Where's her W-2 being sent? Like, she raises too many questions for how horrible it is that she gets to speak again, less than 10 words. Another thing this movie gets to do that I feel like, other than the very repressed Viking way Thor does it, this movie gets to celebrate and cheer and we see a genuine cultural celebration the way they all are so looking forward to this ceremony it's really beautiful and it's really exciting to get to be part of it and one more time mbaku ah. 
Yeah, no, M'Baku's more my speed. I get that one. I also get the T'Challa cheer stuck in my head all the time, like in a positive way. All the time. It just plays uh, just a loop. It's just there the whole time. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. So at about 22 minutes into the film, T'Challa is stripped of his powers for the first time as part of the challenge sequence. The challenge itself starts at about 25 and is only like two minutes long. It feels longer than I think it actually plays out in real time. It's not my favorite fight sequence. I feel like M'Baku has T'Challa on the ropes for a bit too long and T'Challa has the upper hand for too short. It kind of made it too obvious that he was going to lose to Killmonger in the challenge later. You know? I agree. I also think this was an important scene because it's the first time that we think, wow, he really could be wise enough to be king when he tells M'Baku that it's more important to stay and serve his people than to die honorably in this battle. It's a really wise T'Challa and I just don't know that I accept that with a spear hole in his chest wrestling in the water, he would be able to put that kind of whammy on somebody. It's just me being that guy. No, and and that's fair, though. He was specifically just stripped of his magical panther powers. So, you know, it's like when Buffy was getting dosed with that stuff. Like, he should be a little bit fluey from the fact that he was stripped of that on top of everything else. You know, something you noted while watching the film this time that I actually hadn't caught is the look on the face of the border tribe leader when T'Challa wins. He does not look happy. That was really clever seating for all the stuff that is going to come later in the film. Absolutely, because the things that Killmonger ultimately utilizes to help facilitate his takeover are destabilization techniques that would be naturally occurring as much as t'challa is loved it can't truly be that everybody thinks this is the best possible move at the best possible time and again it's one of the things that i love the most about this movie the amount of attention to detail and building the society of wakanda and the way that the different tribes would interact and where even though wakabi and t'challa are friends there's deeper feelings that transcend friendship and politics affect friendship in that way. After this, we get a few different sequences of T'Challa interacting with different characters. We have the ancestral plane with his father T'Chaka. We have him going for a walk with Nakia. We have him visiting Shuri's lab and interacting with her. It's a lot of seeing T'Challa interact with the people around him. I think it gives us a chance to learn his world. I think it sets up T'Challa as not just this over-the-top superhero and adventurer and action star, but it makes him a person by giving his life real depth and texture outside of the suit. Absolutely, I agree. It's really cool to see the moment with T'Challa and Black Widow in Captain America Civil War where he tells her that death is not the end in Wakanda. This brings that scene to fruition now. Finally seeing the ancestral plane achieved. It's the way they executed that throughout the film, whether it's here or Killmonger's sequence or when T'Challa visits the plane again near death. It's really beautiful and they put a lot of thought into the imagery of it, clearly. The movie takes a quick turn to like fun heist adventure north korea excitement gambling movie i can't even explain it it's kind of like the monte carlo scene from iron man 2 but good and i really enjoy so much of what happens here it does set the movie in this like unstoppable propulsion forward because at this point all of the different parts of killmonger's map are going to come together starting with this claw bit that brings in Ross from Civil War. 
Well, what's interesting is that this whole North Korea sequence from when we arrive in North Korea to when Claw is taken into custody is only about 13 minutes. That's not including all the fighting. I'm saying like from when they arrive, including the introduction of Ross and our Stamio, by the way, 44 minutes and 30 seconds. He's that gambler who just sort of takes T'Challa's chips. Nice, Stan. Good job. The fight itself is about seven minutes long really cool sequence almost too much to believe at times that moment when the car explodes and okoye basically metal surfs down that hill i'll buy it i will i don't see why not it's just almost too much almost i actually did write down in my notes that i enjoyed watching okoye slow down with that like weird steering herself down to a stop method it was a lot of fun. I did think watching Nakia just kind of sit in the busted car. She sort of looked like she just flew out of a Mario Kart. And I thought that was a lot of fun. It's a great fight. It's an exciting moment. The only thing is I feel this sequence doesn't have the best narrative emotional flow. It's one of the only times that I feel that the tone of the film shifts a little too much. And I don't know if it's because maybe this was an included scene. Maybe like, nope, Marvel wants this. They want a gambling scene, uh, a big high fun, high stakes oceans kind of scene, but it's still a lot of fun. Yeah, and that's the thing about it. I like this extended sequence of Claw because he's a fun villain. I love when Ross says, you got a mixtape coming out and Claw says, I'll get you the SoundCloud link. Like I was not expecting him to play along with that. He's a fun villain, but he's also one who would get really obnoxious. So I'm glad that there was this action sequence where we got to see him have a little bit more fun before he was ultimately disposed of. You know, I also wonder if this was perhaps something that Marvel wanted in the film. There's a moment later when Shuri says during Killmonger's challenge, why didn't he just show up on challenge day? Yeah, why did they have to go through all of this heist shit just to get to Wakanda? It almost feels like it's a meta critique on the fact that they needed to spend all this time getting Killmonger to Wakanda ultimately. But it's, like Nico said, it's fun. I enjoy it. The movie even makes some sense of that. They have Killmonger's techniques chalked up to American destabilization techniques by Ross. Ross plays a really important role here. I don't really need white people in this movie. It's really okay that they, if there were none, but Ross already exists, and I like that we get him. Unfortunately, there just aren't enough black minor characters in the Marvel Universe that there was a black minor character to use in this instance. It would have been an enormous demotion for Nick Fury, and ultimately, Ross is a really enjoyable, likable character, and he gives a great performance. They found a nice character to insert and be this sort of white ally. He sort of does the right thing most of the time. He stands by when he's told to. There's the moment where M'Baku barks at him, and there are a lot of straight white male characters that would have bristled at that and maybe fought back. But no, Ross shuts up, which is exactly what an ally is supposed to do when they're told to. So, good broken white boy. At this point, we are... Rapidly approaching Killmonger finally getting to Wakanda, which is, I'm convinced, If again, if the something I've said about the Marvel Cinematic Universe since we started this project was that I feel like so many of them would have been three and four movies in the 90s. This absolutely would have been its own film. You know, the second film would have ended with Killmonger getting to Wakanda or perhaps his takeover. They do not fuck around. They wanted to give audiences every minute of movie they could. And from Breaking Claw out to everything happening with Killmonger's Wakandan heritage, I think we get a strong understanding 
that this was running in the background of the movie the entire time. I agree, I do. Unfortunately, this is also a part where the storytelling gets just a little bit flimsy for me. The way T'Challa sees the ring around Eric's neck, that's like a one in a million chance. He's not even like wearing his helmet, I think. There's no like Tony Stark zooming in and seeing it. Like, how can he... It's a big ring, but still, he's really far away. Then all of the stuff with Killmonger and Claw. I don't feel like I was supposed to be surprised by the fact that Eric is Wakandan. I think for me, the bigger surprise is the fact that Zuri and T'Chaka were fully aware of Eric and left him behind. That was like, damn, you serious? So you even experienced what T'Challa experiences that causes him a momentary crisis of faith with his father's decisions. He ultimately does come to understand that his father did the best he could being king and that just because something works doesn't mean it cannot be improved. And that is really who T'Challa is. But yeah, I also feel like so much of the Killmonger stuff just kind of like magically falls into place over and over again. By the time we get to the second challenge, I'm already sort of annoyed that everything is going so well for Killmonger. And you know what? I'm glad that I let you get all of that out because it's funny that you say everything is going so well for Killmonger because his nameless girlfriend just got murdered in front of him. Does he shoot her or does he try to shoot Claw and it kills her? I couldn't tell exactly. Oh, I absolutely think we're meant to think that Killmonger's like, eh, and just kills her because I think Killmonger is too detached from reality to see any one life as too important to sacrifice in the name of destabilizing a government to give himself ultimate financial power. And see, I know too many Killmonger fanboys, like, who are very the way everyone is all Thanos was right, blah blah blah, like... That's super shitty. I feel like if you're putting in this nameless girlfriend who's treated horribly to paint a broader picture of Killmonger being a bad man, then it's fine. But if you're trying to tell me, like, Killmonger was right, okay, well then he's still a piece of shit because this was a horrible way to treat a female character in this film. The throne room scene was really important, especially because that is truly the moment that Killmonger upsets T'Challa's power. It's not when T'Challa is defeated in the challenge. The fact that Killmonger made it this far and got in the throne room, that ultimately sets the tone for the rest of the film. It's why when we get that scene of him in the big baggy pants with the open shawl it, later on, it's so powerful because we just saw him essentially unseat T'Challa. And you had made a really funny comment when T'Challa's like, get him out of here. What was his plan? Did he think no one would hear Killmonger shout out? No, I'm also Wakandan. Like, did he think, oh, but if he's facing the other way, the way sound works. Yeah, he's like, take him away. And it's not as if Killmonger isn't just going to shout what his name is. It's still a dramatic moment that it's one of the council members that asks him, but he was going to say it either way. Like, it's really at this point that I feel T'Challa's power is slipping away from him. He lost so much of the high ground by letting Killmonger take control in that moment. If he'd been the one to say who Killmonger was, Killmonger makes that comment that he brought justice your king couldn't deliver. And it's like, T'Challa couldn't deliver that justice because you obstructed him. You're the one who liberated Claw after T'Challa was the one who caught him. You piece of shit. So then we get to the challenge. The challenge is a little bit brief. I think it's about the same time marker that his challenge with M'Baku was. Two minutes and 46 seconds or so. And as you pointed out earlier, because he did pull it out at the last second and defeat M'Baku, I think we were meant to believe that 
possibly he could pull it out here, but you know, cinematically and storytelling wise, I think it's clear he should lose to Killmonger. The question is, does he lose honorably or not? Does Killmonger have some secret way that he's going to win? I mean, he doesn't. He just fights way dirtier. Yeah, if anything, the challenge is a little bit invalidated by Zuri jumping in. Killmonger kind of extra won this one in a weird, sick way. But because so much of what Killmonger does is take advantage of the inherent weakness of having just lost his father, the tragedy of the upset of his of his people, the resurgence of Claw, so much is going on in T'Challa's life. This is Killmonger on his best day, and it is not T'Challa on his. Once it becomes Killmonger's movie, it feels a little unbalanced. I still enjoy it a lot, but the point at which Killmonger has the upper hand and everybody's just kind of like, well, Killmonger now. It's a very different film. I love your use of the word off balance because that shot of Killmonger walking into the throne room to sit on the throne for the first time where it starts upside down and spins right side up. It's really breathtaking and sets an amazing tone for the film. His ancestral plane sequence where he meets his father in his apartment and, you know, we start to understand that his father was the one who told him these things about Wakanda and probably was the one who gave him his vibranium tattoo and made all these promises. It's, we really start to understand this character better. You know, I, there is a lot more to this character. I'm not saying there isn't. I know I got annoyed about his girlfriend. I should be annoyed about his girlfriend, but they really put a lot of, nuance into this character you know the same way they did with everything in this movie and thinking of him and the way that he must have grown up like it's tough and if one of the things this movie highlights for me is shuri's quote that just because something works does not mean it can not be improved i think the other really important thing this movie talks about is the outcome of our choices and our decisions I genuinely, obsessively love Mbaku. I'm really sorry. It's not just that he's beautiful. It's also his sense of humor, his kindness. They take in T'Challa instead of deposing him. And I think Mbaku creates a really great parallel for Killmonger. Killmonger takes his jealousy and turns it into death and murder, whereas the Jabari... The Jabari just seem like cool dudes, and their women are crazy awesome fighters later on in the movie. I just can't wait. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I think another theme of this film is that there is so much more to every story. You know, when the Jabari first came on the scene in this film, I was like, it's funny the way that the other tribes look at Jabari. It's almost like the way city folk look at country folk. You know, they have this very prejudiced perception of them and are very negative Ramonda is very negative about going to them for help. And then that moment when Mbaku says that he's going to feed Ross to his children, and then he goes, I'm kidding, we're vegetarians. Like, that moment really flipped my perception of Mbaku on a dime. And for the rest of the film, even when he's saying, no, I'm not going to send you help, it's because he's doing what he thinks is in his own people's best interest not to get involved. They did help T'Challa when they found him. When T'Challa wakes up from the ancestral plane again, he looks relieved. There's so much more to people than just what is on the surface, and it that, that really is also part of what I think the film is trying to say. To kind of bring that full circle back and complete my analogy, the way you said that made something really clear. 
Killmonger comes to Wakanda to steal the heart-shaped herb and become leader of the whole world. And when the royal family, or what's left of it, of Wakanda go to the Jabari and offer them the heart-shaped herb in exchange to take over simply Wakanda, M'Baku can't do it. He instead gives the heart-shaped herb to a man who should be his enemy, who he took in and protected. This movie is a movie about decisions, and a movie about choices, and a movie about who you're meant to be. And I just think it's tremendous. God, I can't remember if M'Baku got dusted in the snap. Do you remember? We're going to find out in the next episode. Do you remember? I don't remember. A little mystery. I really hope not. There's so much we still don't know about Endgame. So I'm, I imagine if he wasn't dusted, we're going to end up seeing him in the film. He's such a great character. At this point, T'Challa makes his triumphant return to Wakanda in an effort to stop this actual civil war, unlike the movie Civil War, where there was no civil war. Uh, I love when, with the most beautiful smile on his face, T'Challa says, And as you can see, I am not dead. I think that's just one of the funniest, best, genuine deliveries I have ever seen in a superhero movie. So charming. So clean and fun, and it's everything I want a superhero to be. Killmonger's reaction to that is the epitome of every single one of those characters who think that they have some kind of ideology and they stand for something. All that challenge shit is over with. Oh, I'm sorry. Challenge and tradition meant a fuck ton to you when the royal guards were going to take you away and throw your ass in prison. You insisted that you had the right to challenge because of your blood. Then... The rituals and rules mattered, but now all that shit is over with? No, now you fight or you don't have honor. And it's one of the reasons that Okoye immediately turns on him. And I think that's great. She's such an interesting, fascinating character. I loved the scene between her and Nakia about duty versus loyalty. It was such an amazing scene between two such strong female characters. And to see it then be further developed throughout the film and have her make her own decisions about what loyalty means i i'm even more hype after this film to see her in endgame and see what she's going to bring and loyalty becomes such a driving force in this film i genuinely believe wakabi is unforgivable mm. i just don't think there is any forgiveness in my heart for him and maybe that's why i'm not t'challa and i don't get to sit on the throne but i don't know that i could forgive him for what seems like a grand loss of life, I don't know that you can tell me that no Wakandans died in what is one of the most beautifully visceral fight sequences I've seen in a really long time. I would have a hard time believing no Wakandans were injured in the making of this fight sequence. And you know, in my memory, I actually always make it that Wakabi surrenders a lot earlier than he really does. I think because there is a gap of two and a half minutes between when T'Challa stabs Killmonger and when he finally actually dies. He's just mortally wounded for two and a half minutes. That stab moment comes only like 40 seconds after Wakabi yields. They're really both villains for the same period of time. Wakabi is kind of a villain in this movie. He wasn't tricked by Killmonger. He wanted to send all of these weapons out to the war dogs that were out there. I thought, by the way, something that caught my ear that was really interesting. They say that not every city is ready, but the major hubs of New York, London, and Hong Kong, which is where all the Sanctum Sanctorums are in the world, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. Is, is that correct? That might be the case from Doctor Strange. Where's Joey when you need him? 
Nah, yeah, Joey, confirm, and we'll obviously I'll let you know if I'm wrong, but as soon as I heard that, I know it's at least New York and London, and I think the third is Hong Kong. So that was really funny to me, that those are the major cities they mentioned, and I'm like, I mean, you can try and start a war in those cities, but you've got some sorcerers waiting for you. I think everybody shows tremendous bravery throughout the film, at least, you know, Team T'Challa does. I feel very impressed by... Shuri, Nakia, Okoye, and Ross. Everybody really gives everything they've got. When the Jabari show up, it's such a beautiful moment of brotherhood and camaraderie. I love the way the film crescendos to its end. And I do think T'Challa makes all the right decisions as best he can for his people, especially as it relates to letting Killmonger die. It sounds terrible, but it was the right thing to do to let Killmonger die. Keeping Killmonger alive would have continued to complicate the bloodline, and there's just no reason. As it's as it is, it seems like Nakia only saved one heart-shaped herb, so I'm not yeah. really sold on there being more Black Panthers yet. Yeah, and, you know, I love this movie puts a lot of attention into details most of the time. He even mentions, what am I going to do, spend my life in prison? He probably would, and he doesn't want that. And I think that T'Challa sort of respecting that decision for this person who is his blood makes sense. This is such a more personal crime than what Zemo did to his father. Zemo hurt a lot more people outside of Wakanda, and so he needed to be brought to justice for that. But this is sort of, this is a Wakandan crime against another Wakandan, ultimately. It's almost loving, in a way, that he respected Killmonger's decision that he would rather die than be imprisoned in this place that he always dreamed of eventually seeing. It's funny, I actually didn't notice until I was looking at my notes here. It's almost like 10 minutes into the final battle, the final battle itself being only about like 16-18 minutes. It's almost 10 full minutes before the Jabari tap in and come in as the cavalry. I really thought they were in more of it than that, but... You know, I guess not. We know they're ultimately going to show up in Endgame and contribute there, so. I think that's the sign of a really strong narrative, that things seem like they represented a lot more screen time than they did. That means their utilization was spot on. Again, I'm looking at my notes and my timestamps that I love so much, and it's an hour 58 and 15 seconds that Killmonger dies, and it's two hours, two minutes, and 45 seconds that credits roll. You know, normally in films like this, there is a lot more space for an epilogue and to decompress after the action of the film. They really skirt past a lot of that by showing these sweeping shots of Wakanda with business as usual, which I actually appreciate. In some movies, I might find that a cop-out, but I like showing that Wakanda was able to recover from this, you know, we're labeling it a civil war, and frankly it was, but the fact that they were able to bounce back just shows how strong the nation is itself, and that that's all you need to see to know that Wakanda recovered and is doing well again. Wakanda is in fact doing so well that they're ready to go global. We get that incredible sequence in California where T'Challa is excited to expand Wakanda's outreach and set up cultural centers in the United States. And then when he stands in front of the United Nations and everybody has that great moment where they kind of laugh, what can a little farm country do? I feel like the statement that Black Panther is making is that, yes, Wakanda was able to be very private and very closed off, but now it's time for the world to embrace the Black Panther. And I think that is just the best meta way to end this film. I'm going to pretend that there is no post credit scene. I have no interest in it. <laughs> I have some interest, not a ton. I'll address your thing first, which is I really agree the end of this film has me so excited for Phase 4. That's one of the things that this film has me the most hyped up about is to see where Phase 4 can go now. You know, back in 2008, 
we couldn't have imagined a city where there's hovercrafts and sand tables and nanotechnology. And we were only just starting to branch into the forms of storytelling and story crafting and visuals that we could have done that well. And now as we go into phase four, you know, the trailer for Spider-Man Far From Home with that giant battle with Mysterio where it's like the the enormous explosions, we've gotten into such a place where we can tell stories like this so much better and it has me so excited i want to see more of wakanda in the sequel i want to see more of the capital city i didn't realize until i was looking at my notes but the last hour of this movie almost is all in wakanda which is really amazing especially considering how globetrotting most of these marvel films are but and yet still i want to see more intimate wakanda storytelling and see what they can really do just to talk briefly about the end credits thing it's completely needless i feel like bucky probably talks more in that scene than he did in the entire film the winter soldier it's just nice to know that he's there and he's up and he's walking around and he's got his flouncy hair that is where they leave us to lead into as the post credits tagline says black panther will return in avengers infinity war and the oscar goes to hannah beekler production design jay hart set decoration This is the first Oscar in nomination for Hannah Beekler. She is the first African-American to be nominated in this category. This is the first win and third nomination for Jay Hart. And so will we. What I remember of Infinity War, I remember that it's long, a lot of fighting, a lot of people I really wanted to see talk don't talk. Drives me a little crazy, a lot of sad. I almost feel like we could do an entire episode on what we remember from Infinity War before we talk about Infinity War. I don't want to say too much about it because I'm excited to go into it having only seen it twice with my eyes and heart open, ready to accept whatever things Infinity War brings. think... What I most remember about Infinity War is being, it's almost like what I've talked about with Captain America Civil War following Age of Ultron. I went into Infinity War fully aware that this was going to be an incomplete film. I hoped I would enjoy it, especially considering these films had originally been labeled as Infinity War Parts 1 and 2. We knew that this was going to be a two-part story, that the conclusion was ultimately going to be a full year later. I don't think we fully understood what that meant for the end of Infinity War, so that was certainly exciting, and it's going to be really cool to discuss the film holistically and how we perceived it then versus how we see it now with multiple viewings and all of these trailers coming for Endgame. Well, Kevo, until we get to talking about the Infinity War and Endgame, where can everybody find you online? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Kevoreally, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And as I mentioned earlier in the episode, you can now find us on our Facebook page as well, Husbands Talking More or Less on Facebook. As always, you can check us out over on our amazing webcomic, Kid Riot, over at KidRiotComics.com, where we tell inclusive, diverse superhero stories. We also have X for Podcast, where we take a look at the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise, along with our boyfriend Jonah and our best friend Kyle. Don't forget to listen to me on Now and Again, where we're doing the Emotion Minute. Me and my childhood best friend, Chris, we're talking about Carly Rae Jepsen all summer long. We just made an appearance over with Joey and Mike on Two Dudes, One Cast. Two, 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 it's a good pun. And we made an appearance on Into the Spider-Verse. You definitely want to check that out, since that's going to be a movie that we're not going to be covering here directly in MCU.html. If you're enjoying the network, you should feel free to go over to the Patreon and kick a few bucks to Joey. 
and check me out on Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right. Well, until it's time to tell Mr. Stark we don't feel so well, we'll Aww. see you guys. Wakanda forever. Meow. <laughs>